Hey, Hound Dogs, I'm David Hankins. And I'm Paul Hankins. And I'm Trevor Hankins. And you're on the air with Power Squared. Uh, tonight we have a special guest, uh, David Peterson, the creator of Mouse Guard, is here to answer some questions for us. Hi, David. Hi. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, our only connection to you is that I know Trevor has been by your booth a lot at, at Comic-Con to <laughs> get autographs and things, and uh, it was his idea that he asked you to be on the show, and it's really great that you accepted. We really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Um, so um, for those who don't know uh, who you are, can you tell us something about yourself? Sure. My name's uh, David Peterson, and I write and draw a book called Mouse Guard. Uh, it's a medieval fantasy comic about mice with swords. Um, and I've been doing it since two. I self-published the first issue in 2005, and it's been coming out nationally since 2006. Okay. Uh, when did you discover that you wanted to be an artist? Um, that's a really good way of phrasing that question, because most people ask, when did you start drawing? <laughs> <laughs> and I don't like that question, because the answer is every every kid draws. Yeah. Right? Yes. Um, and just as time goes on, some don't stop. And I'm one of the ones who don't stop. But the way you phrase the question is, when did I discover I wanted to be an artist? Um, and I would say probably like middle school was where uh, it made the most sense. Um, actually, even in elementary school, like I liked to draw and I hadn't stopped drawing, but I wasn't like the artist. There were other kids who were the artist in my, in my grade. Um, but yeah, in middle school, I got more serious about taking some art classes and taking some art classes outside of school. Um, yeah, I grew up in Flint, Michigan, and there's a Flint Institute of Arts there, and they had evening and summer classes for kids. I took some things there, and uh, and then yeah, in middle school, I I, I had a um, uh, oh, what is it called the the uh, elective class that was a it was like a sampler plate. <laughs> they split the year up into four, and it was like quarter of the year you were doing this, and a quarter of the year you were doing French, and a quarter of the year you were doing something. And one of those was art, and I knew I was going to like that. But I also really liked the instructor, and so the next year I signed up for a full year of art during that uh, that time slot. So I think it was around then that it was like, this is uh, if I can make something of this, that's what I want to do. Did you go to art school? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I focused on art all throughout high school, including continuing to do uh, out of school classes and things like that. And, uh, and then I started at a community college because of the art program. The community college um, was right across the street from the high school, or at least that, well, the Flint Institute of Arts was directly across the street from the high school, and the college's art program held its classes in that building. So when I was a senior, they had a couple invitationals for seniors in the in the county to come in and do some some uh, you know almost like audit some classes at college level. And I had done a couple of those, and I I liked the program from what I could see, and I was a little trepidatious about moving out of my parents' house and going off to going off to school. And, and also there was a little bit of, you know, fear in like going to a full university for an art degree when that's not necessarily, you know, a, 
a good job position to be in. You know, there's, there's always the worries about like, do you really want to get your degree in, in art? So I thought if I started a community college, it's a little less pressure, a little less money. Also living expenses go way down because I'm just staying at home. Um, did that, loved it, and then was all in. Uh, ended up transferring to a university and getting my bachelor's in fine arts. But uh, that's a whole other story. <laughs> um, are there uh, artists that inspire or influence your work? Sure, sure. Um, I'm, uh, and I, I kind of divide it into different categories. Like there are artists like um, comic artists like Arthur Adams and Mike Mignola, um, Chris Bocello. More recently, Gabriel Rodriguez. Mm. Um, those are those are artists that inspired me, and like I would look at their work and study and try to figure out how I should be drawing better. Um, then there's you know classic golden age illustration folks like Arthur Rackham and Edmund Dulac. Um, uh, I think you can put N. C. Wyeth in there, even though he's more of a, a classical painter but it's you know in that, in that same kind of time frame of illustrative books um and then you've got modern fantasy artists like tony de Trulisi and uh uh tom port um yeah there, i mean there's there's tons tons and tons <laughs> those, are the, those are the top ones that come to mind is there a typical day for you and what would that be like uh there's not i'm probably not it, it, like it's not a good answer it's not anything that aspiring <laughs> artists should hear <laughs> uh no there's not a typical day uh one i've always been a night owl so and my wife is as well and so not getting up until noon or even early afternoon is normal because we've been up until three, four in the morning. Um, but that's just, you know, we basically just shift our day schedule and push it a little more towards night. Um, just a little bit naturally in our, you know, whatever our bio rhythms or whatever. But um, also we have two giant loud dogs. <laughs> and uh, in the evenings, the house is quiet. Because people, like our dogs will hear people walking outside with their dog. You know, if people are taking dogs for a walk or other dogs in the neighborhood bark or whatever, it's chaos in here. Everybody's barking. Our dog is setting off the neighbor's dog. It's the whole chorus going. <laughs> the phone, you know, we still have a landline. Uh, phone's ringing with solicitations, all that kind of stuff. But in the evenings and at night, uh, all that goes away. And it's actually like really good productive time for us both. Uh, she does all the all the marketing and business side of Mouse Guard, and I do the the writing drawing side of Mouse Guard. Um, okay. But it means that we can both do our work without all those other distractions. You know, phone isn't ringing, nobody's knocking on the door, um, packages aren't being delivered that are making setting the dogs off. So, uh, and and then yeah, what the what the actual day looks like. Um, is usually checking the email first to make sure that there aren't any fires to be put out. There's nothing that's immediate that has to be taken care of. Um, you know, taking doing a little self-care, food, 
coffee, that kind of stuff. Uh, and then getting into whatever is the priority. And sometimes priority is writing. Sometimes priority is uh, fixing something. Like, you know, if there is a fire in the email, if somebody says, I didn't get that file or that file was corrupt or you never sent me the file. I, that's the, like, that's the top thing of the day. Uh, and then after that, it's just kind of a mental priority list balanced with if the priority is uh, of any particular task, whether it's writing or drawing or inking or coloring or starting something new or doing a piece of merchandise or doing a website update or whatever. Um, if there isn't a clear priority, it just boils down to what, what interests me the most. I'd rather be working on something that's got me excited and got me interested um, and, and get that stuff done while I have good energy about it before you know, any kind of feelings change where that work becomes a drudgery. Are you on a sort of a, a schedule that you, the next one has to come out at a certain time or certain day? Not right now, no. So in the past, uh, in the earliest days, I definitely had a schedule for the first volume of Mouse Guard. I was also working a full-time day job uh, uh, back yeah. then. That was insane. <laughs> um, and I think in some ways the work shows. Like, I know people love that first book, but I, I think that there's there's a there's some corners cut that just had to do with there was a schedule i had to get it done i was working a regular day job and i had an hour commute each way and you know i probably wasn't doing my best work or even growing as an artist as much as i could mm -hmm. um after that i would get slower take more time now we've gotten to we've taken that to the most ridiculous degree of, um, <laughs> Everybody asks when the next book is coming, and I tell them I'm working on it. It's just going slowly, and the publisher also knows that basically we're not going to even start publishing issues until I'm done, right. or very close to done with the whole book. Right. right. Um, and I do books in six issue chunks, so um, yeah, whenever I get to that point, and that's a that's a hard thing in terms of scheduling to to worry about too, because you know you guys just saw me at Comic Con. And uh, I also had Heroes Con and Emerald City Con. I'm still going to Baltimore and New York. Uh, not only are there things like packing for conventions, but also making sure maybe we have some new merchandise or, you know, we, oh, we ran out of shirts. Do we want to reprint the old design or do I need to make a new design? Because sometimes we've had a shirt for too long and when it's sold out, reprinting, it's not responsible. Everyone who wanted that shirt probably already bought it. Let's right. do a new thing or whatever. And like right now I'm in the midst of working on a calendar. Um, we put out a calendar last year, it did really well. I wanna make sure I have that calendar in time for my last two fall conventions, Baltimore and New York. So that's actually what I've been working on recently instead of getting more pages done for the next book. So it's always a juggling act of what's what's coming next. Um, how would you describe your art style? Uh, boy, I have no idea how I would describe it. <laughs> well, I know other people. I mean, me, I guess. It's me. Uh, it's 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 probably more line centric than than shape or color centric. Um, it it has a a level of detail that I think people get impressed by, but sometimes there's 
uh, I, I'm always the person who, obviously, I'm I am more detailed in in all the texture and and you know little Easter eggs to find than someone like um, Jeff Smith. Right. Right. Um, but then I'm also really good friends with a guy named Jeremy Bastion who does a book called Cursed Pirate Girl that looks like Albrecht Dewar is doing comics and it is the <laughs> most detailed uh, intricate thing that you've ever seen so when people say my work is detailed I'm kind of like eh, but I'm okay <laughs> I'm not really detailed and I've even I stream on Twitch sometimes and uh, I'll show people like you guys think that there's a lot of detail here, but I'm I'm doing a little bit of magic trick, fooling <laughs> you. Like let's zoom in on this bookcase, and what looks like a bunch of books are just sometimes I draw lines going this way, <laughs> and suddenly it just looks like stacks of books all piled up. At you know some are leaning like this, some are stacked vertically, and you know it looks like I drew all these books. <laughs> I didn't. So yeah, I, some people would call my work detailed. I don't know. I'm, so, I think I'm solidly in the middle there. There's degrees of detail you're saying. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I think other people would describe my work as line centric, detailed, and uh, maybe adorably, uh, adorably fierce. <laughs> uh, I gotta uh, mention that I told you at Comic Con. I. Uh... I've been uh, reading, looking at your blog. Uh, uh, sorry. Uh, I've seen uh, on your blog that your uh, artistic process is a combination of it's a combination of analog and digital, but it's mostly mm -hmm. analog. Uh, how did you uh, arrive at that? Um. Yeah, it, it is definitely a balance of both traditional and digital work, and it's the way I got to it is is just through like an, you know kind of the 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 strongest survive kind of Darwinian methodology. Really, it was like working on stuff traditionally only at first, and then realizing this is you know I I need to find a way to make this part go faster or I need to find a way to make this part go easier. Oh, I could do that fast, that part faster on the computer. But then realizing I don't like, like, I don't like drawing on the computer. I like drawing on paper. So I keep that part. I still draw traditionally on paper and then I scan it and then I'll digitally manipulate. Sometimes I'll resize something or um, realize I've, you know, drawn eyes at two different heights and I need to <laughs> need to scoot them around and you know there's always that trick of mirroring it to kind of see the mistakes and make see them more clearly and I can do all that digitally but I like still having a physical piece of paper um, we, we did a uh, uh, an art of book for the 10th anniversary of Mouse Guard and that and people enjoyed it and enjoyed seeing the process and enjoyed seeing all these old drawings at all different levels. Some some things were finished pages. Some things were the roughest of sketches. Some things were ideas that were just never incorporated, and, and I, you know, they, they were abandoned. But I wouldn't have an archive of that stuff if I only worked digitally, because digitally means you have to be conscientious to save and name all those files something that makes sense, and also have a you know file structure on your computer where you can go back and find them. When I when I finish a drawing and I've got a you know a piece of paper with pencil marks on it, 
and I go, I, I want to do something with that. I have a filing cabinet. Uh, my old desk, I actually used to just have a drawer uh, that was <laughs> meant for filing cabinet or filing uh, hanging file folders that I never put the, uh, or I, I, I never put it in. Yeah. And then two moves later, I didn't even have the hardware anymore. <laughs> so it was just a big open drawer. And I would just open that drawer and drop the drawings in once I was done with them. And then when the drawer got full, I'd go through, spend a day going through and sorting it all into piles mm -hmm. and then putting it into an actual file cabinet that I had elsewhere in the house. Now I've streamlined that where I just, I have a filing cabinet inside of the closet that's here in my studio. <laughs> Each drawer represents a different kind of work. Top drawer is mouse guard, middle drawer is freelance, bottom drawer is personal stuff. And uh, I have different folders that mean different things so like when I finish a piece for this new calendar or if finish even just the sketches I can put them away in the correct folder um, and if we do another art of book I can very easily pull any of the process stuff out uh, that makes sense but I also like like I said doing some of that stuff digitally being able to flip and manipulate being able to do some quick digital color to see objects and forms um, pop out you know if you're drawing a whole bunch of grass that's overlapping, you know, at kind of mouse scale that's that's popping up and overlapping. In a pencil drawing, it gets really hard to keep track of what is a solid piece of grass and what is an open airspace where you would be able to see sky or daylight behind. Um, so once I do a little bit of that drawing, or even sometimes I'll just go, I'm going to put grass here and just do a couple like quick pencil flicks. And then when I scan it, and I'm still doing the, this is still rough, this isn't a finished piece, but I'll in color paint in those grass blades in thick wide color because then I can see what's either a positive shape of grass or a negative shape of whatever's going behind it. Um, and I can do that way faster digitally than I could traditionally. And then I print that out and I ink the whole thing uh, traditionally. Ink, ink on paper. Mm -hmm. Um, huh. And I ink on a light pad, no. so <laughs> I can just put the printed out piece that was a combination of digital and traditional manipulation. I can tape that right onto the back of this Bristol on a light pad. I can see through it and I can ink everything. And it means that on my original pages and original final original artwork, I don't have any pencil marks that I need to erase. Um, so the inks are always super crisp and clean, which makes scanning it again to do digital color all the easier. I don't have to worry about doing as much cleanup. The physical piece looks really clean. If anybody is a collector of original art and wants to purchase it, it looks super clean and nice. Um, and I've, you know, I've penciled on final art and then had to erase after I ink. And there's always the problem of erasing brings up just a little bit of the darkness of the ink. So instead yeah. of it being like a nice black line, it's suddenly like an 85% gray line. Yeah. <laughs> and I've also been the impatient artist who starts erasing on something that's not quite dry and you smear ink <laughs> or you just get too vigorous and it catches the edge of the paper oh. and it snags and you just, you know, you're, you're at that last stage, you're at the finish line, you've finished the piece. You just need to clean up all this graphite and then you crinkle the paper and erasing it yeah. so by doing it this process i i don't have to do any of those things so it was like yeah like i said darwinian 
strongest survive. <laughs> the process that got me the best results the fastest is what won. Uh, something you said when you were talking about that reminded me uh, the mangaka uh, Hirohiko Araki, who, did, who does uh, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, uh, he mentioned in his uh, he mentioned that. Uh, he wouldn't have been able to have exhibits, including one like in the Louvre, if he didn't persist in analog. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I've I've had the opportunity to exhibit. In fact, I'm going to be. I just got an email today about a an exhibit at the community college where I started. They're doing a, um, an alumni show. Uh, they want at least one student from every year um, to have something in the show to celebrate the school's anniversary. Hmm. Um, yeah, and so my wife and I were looking at what we have that's available that we could put in the show and frame and and yeah i i wouldn't be able to do that if things were digital that's cool uh did they already answer that i think so uh i uh like to ask you some uh specific questions about mouse guard okay uh uh, what would you say are the main inspirations for Mouse Guard? The main inspirations for Mouse Guard are playing role-playing games with uh, my friends when we were in high school and college, um, being a Boy Scout, and just my general love of talking animal stories, Wind of the Willows, Aesop's Fables, Disney's Robin Hood, things like that. Um, yeah, I, the, the original, original Mouse Guard started in high school, and it wasn't even called Mouse Guard. In fact, there weren't any mice in it. Uh, but it was called 1149, which was the year that it took place. It was supposed to be taking place. And it was a talking animal adventure with a party of animals that was essentially one animal representing each person who was in my friend group that played role-playing games with me. And... Uh, I just put together a party and it was very much more similar to Disney's Robin Hood where the animals were more like human proportions, but with, you know, kind of more animalistic hands, tails and heads. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and very kind of animated style versions of those. Um, and then uh, in college, I thought I wanted to dust the idea off again and make it a little bit more uh, I guess at the time I thought more more mature. I don't want to make it like a cartoon. I want to make it more mature, maybe more like literature. So uh, I leaned into the Aesop's Fables side of it and thought if all the animals are their appropriate animal sizes and I keep all the predator-prey relationships so you wouldn't have um, a rabbit and a fox being friends because the fox would want to eat the rabbit. So. Right. Um, I started trying to build out this world and it, it was through kind of figuring out the maximums and, and minimums of things, you know, where, where the borders are, how, how many species of animals would I have? Do I also want to come up with all this, all these cultures and characters for insects as well? And how big is the biggest animal that I want to bring in? And it was in figuring out those borders that, uh, I, I thought mouse would be a uh, mouse would be the smallest thing that I would want to put in. I didn't want to do insect cultures. And uh, and then I worried, like, how do you keep, how would you keep mice alive in that kind of story? Or really any prey animal, but yeah. um, how are you going to keep them 
involved in the story. Uh, the the reference I always use or the analogy I always use is in in Lord of the Rings when the hobbits are going to come out of the Shire and try to do something, the world of elves and dwarves and men find it humorous, you know, ha ha ha, little hobbit, you're too small to affect change in the world. It'd be the same for the mice except the other animals would also say yum lunch. <laughs> you know, Leg Legolas and Strider and Gimli didn't want to eat the hobbits. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, boy, that's that's a hard thing. How do you keep the other characters involved? Boy, the the society of mice would have to be rather sheltered and they'd have to keep to themselves and they'd have to have this like almost like this whole network of how to how to keep paths between their settlements secure and and like patrols and and I just kept going down that path and developed what is Mouse Guard. And, and like I said, I was pulling in calls, all, the, all the, the going on patrols and things like that. That's all Boy Scout lingo. And that's things that I took from being a scout. Um, the interactions between characters and, and that anticipation of danger that comes from role playing games. So it's, it's all of those things. Uh, I think I saw there was an uh, older post on your blog where you mentioned Redwall as an influence. It was kind of a counter-influence, and I say that respectfully. Um, I had started working on the Mouse Guard concepts, and I'd drawn a few characters, and uh, a really good friend of mine handed me the first Redwall book and said, you will love this book because of what you're doing. And I was like... Oh, cool. And I read it and I was like, damn it. Because <laughs> also the problem was I really enjoyed that book. <laughs> you know, if it was a bad book, if I was like, this is garbage, I could totally do this better. I wouldn't have been upset. But instead I went, somebody's doing this way better than anything I was going to do. <laughs> um, so granted, I wasn't in a position to try to do anything with Mouse Guard at that moment anyways. I was a first or second year college student you know I, I didn't have the time or probably even the the stick to itness to to finish doing any kind of graphic novel at that right. Right. that stage but I did kind of mentally shelve mouse guard for I think it was a total of nine years um, now I'd still draw the characters every now and then and I you know they wouldn't leave stuff about what mouse guard is and could be kept popping into my head and I'd just store it away maybe draw them a couple more times, but uh, it wasn't until much later on that I went, okay, I think I can do this and be distinctive from what Redwall is. So I, some of that I knew was gonna be inherent because Brian Jakes and I are different human beings. We're gonna tell different stories. You know, even if we were given the exact same seed story, we would both come up with different, yeah, yeah. different outcomes. Yeah. Um, but on top of that, I thought I should have some direct things that are different about Mouse Guard than, than Redwall. Right. Um, the mice keeping to themselves was already built into mine. I didn't have them being friends with badgers and hares right. and all these other animals. They sometimes do interact. There's a whole scene where they interact with hares. But it's not like we're in Redwall. They're all allies and they all live together uh, in the abbey. Right. Um, and that they're natural allies. This is this is different. Um, and things like badgers and and some of the other animals that they sometimes interact with would be 
a nuisance or a direct predator. So right there, I'm like, there's a difference. Right. Um, and then there were some others about, you know, a lot of stuff happens at Redwall Abbey in Redwall. And I was like, I think I want to focus on having my mice out of doors in between settlements more often than they're ever in a settlement. This is about that, you know, being out on patrol as a Boy Scout. That's that's what I want my mice doing more often than not. We can have some things happen at Lock Haven, which is the home of the Mouse Guard, you know, the equivalent of Redwall. Right. But I want more things to happen outside of Lock Haven than happen inside Redwall. Um, so it was a it was a counter influence, but uh, like I said, I say that respectfully because it's wonderful, it's good. It also means a lot of it means a lot of things to a lot of people in terms of their childhood yeah. and what they yeah. grew up with. And it took me a while to even receive um, in the early years of Mouse Guard when when people would come up and say, "Oh, this reminds me of Redwall." it would feel like an insult. Like, no, it's not. It's not Red Bull. It's my own thing. I made my own thing. Um, and it took me a while to kind of like mentally kick myself in the butt and go, they're paying you a compliment, idiot. <laughs> you know, like, just say thank you. It's wonderful. Thank you. That's that's high praise. You know, those are the things that you can say back to people so that you're not scowling at them when they just said something nice. Yeah. So I, uh, I uh, happened to read the first Redwall book before seeing that post, and uh, uh, now that you've uh, said all that, I can see where you were coming from. <laughs> uh, I, I, uh, sorry. Uh, as you were, uh, well, uh, you were describing like uh all the stuff you had to figure out what the world of mouse guard uh i think it like it shows in the it shows in your writing like how well thought out it is as thank you during uh how long did it take you to figure out the layout and the inner workings of the setting and also did you figure out the designs of each location as you went yes as i went yeah 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 Totally as I went. I'm, so I'm still figuring stuff out about Mouse Guard. Um, so I, I I do a lot of talks about world building. And for someone who wants to do world building, especially for narrative, not for like a role playing game, but for narrative, right. um, one of the things I try to explain to them is you can't do it all at once. You just can't. And even if you try, and you come up with all of this information, you can't deliver that. You can't find a way to make that digestible to a reader without there being a story. There has to be a story. There has to be a, you know, like a human component. We have to care. Right. Otherwise you're handing them a history text or an atlet. Um, and if you're trying to do more like, you know, you're doing world building because you wanna be a video game designer or a, or a role playing game, setting creator like that's a totally valid expression of doing this kind of work i'm not discrediting that but someone who wants to do it for story you really can't do it all at once so i feel like it's easier to not burden yourself by trying to get it all done at once and then you're also setting yourself up not to fail because you're going to be dishing it out to your reader in in parts 
Um, I had some big, broad ideas about what the world of Mouse Guard could and should be. Some of it was just instinctual feeling. Some of it was actually sitting down and trying to plan some things out. But I, I have a general idea or a general rule that nothing exists for certain. Like none of this stuff is nailed down until the issue is published. Right. So at any point now, things that I like, I have things planned for this book that I'm working on. But if if something changes um, while I'm working on it and I want to change it, or I realize that there's a there's a hole, uh, something doesn't make sense, or it contradicts something that I've already written that has been published and I need to change it, I can. So all of that like over preparing of trying to you know, come up with everything, sit down and plan it all out. Um, you, you're just making life hard for yourself. So <laughs> yeah, I've tried really hard to just deal with it when we get there. Um, like I, I, you know, every fantasy book needs a map. So when we did the first hardcover collection, I had to, I had to like really draw the map and draw all the cities. And I, I did it visually. I just went, there's a dot here and here and here and here and here and here and here. And those are all cities. Now I need to come up with a whole bunch of names for cities. And I just <laughs> brainstormed a bunch of ideas. Some of those names are evocative. Like when I wrote them and even now when I hear them, I think, ooh, I, I, I kind of have a vague, hazy vision of what that kind of a place looks like. But when it actually comes to like designing those cities or what they are, I don't worry about it until I'm sending my mice there. And then I try to make it more story-based. That city needs to play some kind of a role in the story. Is it a hostile environment? Is it a friendly environment? Is it a, is it a spooky environment that turns out isn't spooky at all? Is it a really pleasant environment that turns out is actually really scary and has a dark city underbelly that no one recognizes? You know, whatever the story needs, that's what then that city becomes because, or I'll pick a difference, you know, if the name is not evocative of where where we're going or where I need the, the characters to go in terms of the story needs, then I'll just pick a different city. But yeah, I don't, I don't explore those locations until it's time for the mice to explore those locations. That makes sense. <sighs> uh, one question about uh, Kalana. Mm-hmm. Uh, I noticed in uh, like in volumes two and three, you uh, sort of inserted how to pronounce his name. Yeah. Uh, did you do that because people kept asking you? I did that because people kept saying it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm going to put some air quotes around wrong because right. it's a made-up word. Right. <laughs> you know, it's not like there's some historic tradition of that name you know in like Gaelic you know Scottish Gaelic or something and and we as English speakers just don't understand that but I've done the research and I'm now I'm telling you this is how you pronounce <laughs> it's not that at all um, the name Kelenaw is completely made up it is a combination of the names Alec and Ewan uh, spelled backwards and it's because Kelenaw is supposed to be my Obi-Wan character so I gave him the name of the two men who at that point had played Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I just kind of pronounced it out the way I thought it should be. 
And then once I put it in book form and I hear all kinds of people saying, some people asked, but some people would also just come up and tell me about how much they love Solanaway. (laughs) (laughs) And because I had never thought of it being, I don't even know what they're talking about. You know, they they might as well be coming up and telling me, you know, oh, I love Gleeblegloble. And I'm like, who's Gleeblegloble? I don't even know what you're saying. Solanaway? What is Solanaway? And then people, you know, pointing to that, to Kellanaw in the book, and I go, "Oh, Kellanaw." They go, "Oh, is that how it's pronounced?" Or I've heard Selenaw, Kel, uh, Kel, uh, Solanaway. Those are the two more prominent ones. Um, yeah. So I, I just decided I'd put a little pronunciation. I put it in the winter book first, and I thought, "There, I've solved it." Um, and even after that, I was still getting people saying it wrong um sometimes in like video reviews of the book or in person and so when i did this the the um, black axe book that is uh really stars kalanaw i thought i probably need to reiterate this one more time and actually maybe it would be funny if everybody in the world also has a hard time pronouncing his name (laughs) and he's the one having to go no it's it's actually pronounced (laughs) kalanaw Uh, actually, uh, uh, but, uh, sorry, uh, before this interview, I, uh, uh, went back and read the comic, read the comic again to sort of re-familiarize myself with it. Uh, uh, I've noticed how, like, the, the Black Axe is, like, seems to be central to the world of mouse guard or at least what we see of it uh mm-hmm. i was wondering uh at what at what point in the planning stage did you think of the black axe as the central focus of the plot i didn't i it just happened organically um so the 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 original mouse guard idea when it stopped being 1149 and became mouse guard featured um you know this this main trio except it was saxon kenzie and rand uh instead of liam and i had a story in mind about what that trio you know does and what what they're like and um when it came time to actually write and draw the issue like i said almost nine years later um i realized that big idea of a story was too big for me to tackle as a first time comic creator, but also is probably gonna to be too big for an audience to digest. And I needed to do something a little smaller. And so that first issue of Mouse Guard or chapter one of Fall was really like, just here's the concept of Mouse Guard. Like we don't see mouse settlements. We don't see Lock Haven. We don't really see mice other than the main characters, Sex and Kenzie and Liam. We see the grain merchant for a second, but that's it. Um, we see our three main characters. We see a snake. And, and that's pretty much all we, in the natural land. Um, and then I just kept building off of that. And I had a, you know, a general idea. It's about these adventures and maybe we'll have this thing happen at the, at Lock Haven. That's a danger. And that's where we end up. And I can introduce this mentor character. That's our Obi-Wan mouse. Who's uh, also goes by the name, the black ax. And we're going to see him as, as you know, you and McGregor, or, I mean, uh, uh, Alec Guinness era, Obi-Wan. He's gonna this is gonna be the old Obi-Wan, and he's still gonna be amazing. 
and and knowledgeable and an awesome mentor in a way that makes you realize like man this guy must have been amazing in his prime like what was he like in his prime and that was the only purchase of, uh, or, or, or purpose of having Kelena there was that he was just going to be this mentor character and then kind of like Obi-Wan fade away uh, the nature of the black axe is that he's more secret he was going to you know be there for that part of the story and i wasn't going to obi-wan him he wasn't going to actually you know become one with the force and the <laughs> but he was going to you know wander back out into the woods and then i could have him wander back in you know in a book two or a book three or whenever i wanted but he's not supposed to be a main character and uh as i was writing the epilogue in uh for fall i was like i think I think I know, and this is a spoiler for people who haven't read Mouse Guard, but um, I was like, I think I want Liam to end up with the Black Axe. And so if I'm going to do that, then the whole second book needs to be Liam and Kelena getting close so that that transition makes sense. Um, so then the second book, he becomes this major character and his death becomes this like pivotal thing. Um, and I need that death to matter. So he has to be very important. We have to grow very close to him as a, as a character. That was not my intention initially. You know, like I said, I just wanted these mice to go on adventures, but that became a thing. And there were unanswered questions. Fans had questions about Kelanon, the black axe that Saxon actually brings up in fall. You know, how, how can he, how can he be the black axe when the legends are older than we are? And, and you know we're more than twice as old as we are and and this mouse isn't that old there's no way and so in the winter book i thought i have to kind of dance around that and sort of answer the question <laughs> but also not answer them and when i was wrapping up the the second book um his his death like it kind of hurt it was like wow i can't i can't believe that i did that and it was also weird that obviously, you know, you finish an issue way in advance of when it gets printed and before people read it. So I've drawn it. I've gone through the mourning process. I know that that character is dead and I'm not going to draw them anymore. And there's no more further adventures of Kellenaw, but nobody else knows it yet. <laughs> <laughs> I have to be very careful about what I say at conventions or if I was streaming or anything like that. Um, and then I go, yeah, I think, I think the third book needs to be like, I'm just not done with this character. I don't know entirely why, but I think, I think if Liam gets the black ax, we need to understand what, what it means to wield that weapon more than just the lore. We need to actually get the real story about, you know, how the ax is handed down and all that. And in, in doing that, I added even more lore <laughs> to, <laughs> The founding of the Black Axe, you know, who who forged it and how many mice have wielded the Black Axe before Kellanaw and Liam and all of that. And all that does is just open more questions. It's, it's like doors upon doors all getting opened that any one of those passageways we can wander down. There's probably a good story down there. And it just means that that Black Axe thread has become way bigger than I ever intended. It was originally supposed to be this story about Saxon, Kenzie, and Rand, where no one of those mice was supposed to be any more important than the other two. But because of the way I started telling the story, these other things started falling into place. And I think it's kind of the, when you hear other authors talk about how your their characters start talking to them or start saying 
here's what I'm going to say or here's what I'm going to do and you as the author just have to listen to them it's almost like that like this path just started unrolling before me and it's just trying to do my best job of getting to a logical conclusion going down those paths uh, uh, how much research did you do on mice and other animals before you started mouse guard almost none <laughs> yeah almost none I, I mean you know there has to be a there has to be a dividing line between the real world and what I'm doing because mice can't walk on their hind legs and they can't wield axes and you know there's always going to be some amount of fantasy just in that premise alone right um so yeah studying like real mouse anatomy uh would probably have limited me where i couldn't get them in cool poses anymore because i know you'd have to like <laughs> that would probably be breaking the femur of of a mouse if i really put them in that position that'd be you know torturous to have to draw so yeah i just drew mice that looked mouse enough um, for what I could handle at the time and that I could still have them doing all the things I needed them to do, all the kinds of poses, whether they were sitting on stools or swinging swords and axes or raising tankards in the air or climbing trees or whatever. It, it looked both like a mouse but also feasible for how I should draw it. Uh... The other animals I do, I, I will look up more photo reference I don't do that much research. I'll occasionally do some research about like what's the habitat or what's the life cycle or, um, you know, is this a pack animal or do they keep to themselves? Right. Right. Some things like that. But yeah, I, I don't. I don't do that much. I'm. I'm certainly not a slave to research on that front. Okay. Uh, what would you say is your favorite animal to draw? Uh, favorite animal to draw. I mean, probably just the mice because they're you know it's it's the thing I'm the most familiar with. But uh, I enjoy drawing birds. Um, I enjoy drawing birds. I let's see, what have I drawn that I like and that I don't? I'm trying to th also contrast it with like drawing snakes can be a pain because <laughs> of the scales. Yeah. Um, and it's not just oh I have to draw scale upon scale upon scale. It's like if you don't get it quite right, they look like wonky shingles falling off of a house <laughs> like a smooth snake skin that's actually part of the snake and curving with the contour of whatever position you've put you know this coil of a snake in if you if you don't get those coils or those scales right it looks it looks wonky and that's a so that's no fun um it took me a while to find how to draw weasels where i wasn't just doing photo reference matching what an ex exactly what a weasel looks like right uh but it still looked like a weasel <laughs> and it looked like it belonged in mouse guard like if i drew it too photorealistic and it was next to the way i draw mice it looks weird but then when i was drawing weasels more casually they start to look like long bears <laughs> like i just took a, a bear and kind of stretched it out and it looked really it didn't look good so i had to, it took me a while to find my voice but um yeah, I don't know. I like drawing badgers, I think. It's been a while since I've drawn a badger, but... Um, 
yeah i don't know i i, I guess i kind of like drawing all of it but some of the some things can be a little trickier than others uh, uh, uh i actually uh like the way you draw weasels <laughs> thank you uh does does snakes answer the question of what your least favorite animal to draw is let's go with snakes sure <laughs> something else that i'm just not thinking of but yeah if you think of it later you can throw it in. yeah and i i don't i don't not enjoy drawing snakes it's just that part of like i'll you know, kind of like i was talking about painting in blades of grass because then you get the the form of it you get the the mass of it rather than a line for the top of it and a line for the bottom of it yeah um i will sometimes digitally just paint out you know a big old whoop kind of swoop and go that's the position i want the snake in but now figuring out how it coils where the belly is on the bottom but then here it actually wraps around and becomes the front of it and then if it's going that way on this wrap then it needs to go that way on this wrap and after you do all that now scales <laughs> in perspective and contour like it, it can it can be a lot um but it's not like i hate drawing snakes right it's just a lot i also like the way you draw mice <laughs> well thank you <laughs> uh this is uh this is uh admittedly a bit of a uh nerdy question uh uh what became of the fox cubs in volume three? Oh, you're one of the only people who's ever asked that um i have i do have ideas about what becomes of them i think they grow up i think they grow up well Right. I don't know that I want to say more than that. <laughs> they get good jobs. And they get, yes, they get good jobs. <laughs> uh, uh, one, uh, sorry. Uh, think, I think the first Mouse Guard story I read was uh, Tale of Baldwin the Brave. Mm. From uh, this pretty comic book day thing <laughs> oh okay yeah 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 uh i'm wondering uh how did you uh how did you uh decide to present that as a puppet show <laughs> um yeah actually i don't remember how i decided to do it or, or like why um right. so the that was like you said it came out as a free comic book day book there had been the first time we got the opportunity to do a free comic book day issue that was going to have mouse guard in it. Um, I was trying to figure out how to balance doing a short free comic book day story because free comic book day, you know, one of the big points is to bring in people who either aren't reading your book or aren't reading comics at all. You're trying to bring in new people. So it needs to be a very new reader friendly story. But obviously, we've all been to Free Comic Book Day, right? What do we go to with Free Comic Book Day if our favorite creator has put out a book for free? We want that one because we are the biggest fill-in-the-blank of your favorite creator fan there is. I want that book, right? <laughs> so it has to, this, this Mouse Guard Free Comic Book Day story has to work for completely new readers who have no idea who I am or what Mouse Guard is, but also the people who have been with me since day one need to feel gratified. 
And the first Free Comic Book Day story I did, I actually feel was a failure for Free Comic Book Day. It was called Spring 1153. We ended up using it as the prologue for Black Axe. Right. Where it actually works way better. Um, but just as a complete standalone, I don't think it really did either one of those things very well. So in the second year that we got the opportunity, I thought, I gotta, I gotta come up with a new way of doing one of these kinds of stories. Um, and we had done some of these uh, anthology books called Legends of the Guard, where I got guest artists to tell tall tales and legends that were set in the Mouse Guard world. And I thought, I wanna tell fairy tales. I wanna tell Mouse Guard fairy tales like they're getting to do. So maybe that's what I'll do for, for my free comic book day stories. And for the free comic book day stories, I'll make sure that the mice who are hearing the story are actually mice we know from the books when they're children. And now we'll find the morality story, like what morality story did Kenzie hear to make him grow up to be who we know Kenzie is? What kind of story did Saxon hear to have him grow up to embody the, the you know, the morals and and, and things that you know Saxon embraces. So I had done one of those. Uh, so the, the Baldwin the Brave one was actually the third year. And again, I'm not quite sure why I decided to do it as puppets, other than I thought it would be fun. It would be a little different to draw this whole story taking place as, as marionettes. Somewhere in there, you held up that book, uh, somewhere in there, the publisher, the owner of Archaea at the time decided he was going to publish that as a hardcover. Yeah. Um, which was a huge gamble. It was also, so at first when he told me I'm going to do it as a hardcover, I said, that's a, that's a terrible idea <laughs> because comic book stores have to pay for the printing and comic book stores are already, you know, they're, they're putting out so much money for free comic book day in a way where they're not, collecting or guaranteeing any collection on revenue so it's you know they're, they're buying party favors essentially um, why are we going to try to charge them for a more expensive party favor why is someone going to buy one of our hardcover when they could buy four or five of another issue and kind of get the most bang for their buck and he said I've got that solved already I'm going to I'm going to eat the extra cost and we're just going to use it like an advertising budget. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, that's crazy, but okay. Um, and what it meant was that book was huge. It was ordered like crazy by stores. It was distributed like crazy by stores. And at the point where I knew what the order numbers were and that that free comic book Saturday was coming, I had my head in my hands going, what kind of a stupid colossal mistake have you done <laughs> you, you get this chance you get this platform to show everybody what mouse guard is and you decided to draw marionettes <laughs> you're not drawing mouse card we don't really see mice in the whole so there's like one panel where we see real mice what, what are you doing you <laughs> what it actually looks like and you're like yeah but look at this instead here stay for the puppet show uh, it seemed like one of the dumbest things I'd ever done. Um, uh, luckily, it turned out okay. <laughs> um, the hard and I've talked. Stand out. Thank you. Uh, I talked to Mike Mignola about that one, and he's like, 
he said that for years with Hellboy, he would just get an itch to tell some kind of a story or do something that was different or weird. And every time he was doing it, he said he'd just go, this is it. This is the point where I've crossed the threshold that it's so weird. The only person I'm entertaining is myself. <laughs> no one else is going to be going to be willing to come along on this journey. Everyone else is going to think this is too, this is too nutso. And he goes, and every time I do that, people tell me it's the best thing I've ever done. <laughs> and, and he's like, I think that's what that free comic book day marionette story was like it was pure you like no one else is doing a puppet show for their free comic book day story like you said it was different it stood out and it was you know unadulterated what amused me which i think is sometimes finding out what amuses a creator and what they're most interested in and actually gets the re the readers to f you know they fall more in love with that sensibility and get more linked to who the creator is. So, yeah, it was. I, but I thought it was a huge mistake. I was literally like, <laughs> "What have you done? What have you done? Why don't you just draw your mice the way you draw mice?" You do? Uh, you 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 already said before that you're still uh uh planning to continue beyond volume three mm -hmm. uh i was uh wondering also wondering uh how uh, far out do you have the main story planned um planned through book five right but i also in that same way that i talked about things not being nailed down and like don't do extra work until it's time yeah yeah um these are rough outlines right um for so so the one i'm working on now is book four and actually i don't nail everything down as i'm going on that I, I it means i have the ability to paint myself into a corner but i also like to leave it a little loose so that i have some flexibility so if i discover things as i'm going or even find something that's more interesting you know oh this part of the story is more interesting let's give this way more space to breathe and i'll shrink down something else right. um so four book four isn't nailed down nailed down but you know obviously that's much more complete than book five uh book five is a, a rough outline of things i know need to happen and then i have lots of just things that would that are written down that are like wouldn't it be cool if i did a story where happened <laughs> you know and, and i'll list those things and some of those are like well maybe that's a book six maybe that's a short story maybe that's more like a free comic book day thing uh, yeah, I don't know, but yeah, up to, book five is kind of as far as I've planned out, um, and it's not like a the end by any means. It's right. just that's, and and I've also realized the weight because um, I kind of had a rough trajectory up through book five when fall ended, um, and. Uh, the pressure of that, of knowing that all that story is out there as I'm trying to work on just the next, you know, I can only work on one book at a time. So right. here I am doing all this and it feels like I'm so far behind because look how much, look how much is planned ahead. So I'm kind of purposely not thinking about anything beyond book five, just because I don't want the added pressure and I don't want extra things swimming around in my brain right now. I, I need to just get that next book out and right. you know, my head down and work on that. 
uh, you know, at least have like vague ideas for stories. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yep, I've got I've got several documents. Uh, so you know, when we were doing Legends of the Guard, um, which was that spinoff anthology, I also I had a list of really vague things, or even uh, things I knew couldn't be big stories because sometimes people would say, I'd love to do a story for Mouseguard, but what kind of thing would you want me to do? And I could just copy and paste from that list. I could go, he, you know, here's three ideas. You're welcome to any of these. You know, if you wanna, if you wanna build off of one of these. So I have, you know, really vague things that were legends, ideas that either didn't get you, yeah, for the most part, didn't get used. Um, I've got things that are a little bit more designed that I know are short stories, more things like for free comic book day style stories. And then I've got the vague stuff of like, this could be a book six thing. This could be a short story. This could, I don't know. It, it, someday it'll appear somewhere. Okay. Uh, do, you, do you have anything, do you have any mouse guard stories uh, currently in the pipeline or are you uh, not able to talk about that right now? Uh, well, the next book that I'm working, book four, is uh, The Weasel War of 1149. So it takes place between Fall, the first book, uh, and Black Axe, the third book. Although it's much closer in time to the to the first book, to Fall. Right. Um, and yeah, it's the big Weasel War that's kind of mentioned throughout uh, Fall and Winter. And uh, yeah, beyond that, I, I can't really say too much. All right. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I'd like to do. I'd like to do. There's, there's things I'd like to do that. Um, talk about like beyond book six. There's, um, Mike Mignola is a huge inspiration to me, and not just the way he draws, and not just the character Hellboy, but I, I actually looked at his career and listened to lots of interviews and things that he did to get inspiration for kind of how to treat my career or what a career I would hope I would have. And there were things about the way he did Hellboy, like Hellboy was released as a series of miniseries. It wasn't an ongoing. Right. And that was a little more unusual in the 90s. Yeah. And I was like, that's the kind of thing I would want to do if I did a, a series. So that's the path that Mouse Guard took. Um, the reason that there was a Mouse Guard anthology was also because there was a Hellboy anthology called Strange Tales or Weird, Weird Tales, Weird Tales. Yeah. Um, something that Mike does that I wish that I haven't completely played with. So Mike was doing some short stories that were for these uh, dark horse collections, the book of witches, the book of, Oh, I don't remember what all of them were. They had different themes. The book of witches was one, the book of magic or something was another, but he'd do these short eight, 10 page stories. And that's kind of what I'm doing free comic book day stories. But Something I haven't emulated that I think I'd like to is sometimes Mike would do a, a four issue arc that was, you know, like a big story or a five issue arc that was a big story. And sometimes he'd do a standalone issue. And sometimes he'd do a two issue thing that was complete. It was just two issues. That's as much story as there was. He played with the size and said, some stories are big, some stories are small. And right now I've only done, you know, really small short stories or six, volume or six issue volumes yeah. um i think it might be interesting to play with the size at some point after book five and like i have an idea for a, a story about saxon and kenzie 
um, meeting for the second time when they both joined the guard um, and their time going through um, uh, like the initiation process. They're not, they're not fully, they haven't been given their cloaks. They're not full patrol guard mice. There's stuff in the role-playing game. And I mentioned a little bit in the, in the, the series as well, that there's this whole process where you have to learn how to be of service to others. Um, Cause that's what the guard is all about. So instead of getting to go off and, you know, be fancy with a sword and get to do the fun stuff, you have to just be of service to the guard itself. And uh, yeah, I have a whole idea for a, a story, but I don't think I don't think it fits into either one of those categories. It's too big to be an eight issue story, and it's way too small to be a six issue arc. So yeah, stuff like that. I have I have little things like that that at some point it'd be great. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, uh, I was uh, exploring your blog. I noticed you have a post that was, explains like why the why the comic has a square format mm-hmm. uh, for those who don't read your blog uh, would you be able to explain that <sighs> sure so uh, long before I started Mouse Guard I had been told by people you know you should set up a comic convention I wanted to set up at a comic convention or do a comic of my own and this is in the days of like zine style publishing being the only thing there wasn't print on demand there wasn't a way to you know if if you wanted to publish a single issue you were talking about four or five grand on a on a print run Mm. of a lot of issues that was that was all you could really do unless you were going to do something like a kinko style you know folded zine um and at my local comic convention zines were a big thing or mini mini comics or ash cans they were also called um, that, that was a big thing. Lots of people had that kind of book out on their table. I was thinking, like, how could I get something out on my table that would make someone who's walking down the middle of the aisle know to stop and look at my little white rectangle <laughs> instead of somebody else's little white rectangle? Uh, those were also the days before, like, retractable banners were affordable. So it was like, I'm not going to be able to pay for a display. I'm going to have a piece of cardboard with some crayon on it saying, I'm, you know, I'm me, buy my stuff. Uh, you know, like taped to an easel. And like, that's all, how, how am I going to get somebody over to see what I've got? Uh, if I do like color, you've ruined the whole point of doing a zine. Like the, it's too, it's going to be too expensive. Well, I could use color paper for the just for the cover stock, but I don't know if that's enough to get people over. And somewhere in there, I thought, well, when you when you go to a copy center, if you if you copy on legal paper instead of letter sized paper, it's not that much more expensive. So that's a way you could play with the format. I could do this thing that's a little wider and figured out the the math on it. Now, by the time I started mouse, and it got me interested in the idea of just doing something a little wider. When Mouse Guard started, I thought, oh, I want to, I want to play with that. But there's math involved in comics in that you always draw your pages larger than what they're printed. Yeah. So it's the amount of reduction that you have to calculate for. And I knew that if I had two different dimensions, a width and a height, I would have to do the math twice if those were different numbers. But if they're the same number, I only have to do the math once. <laughs> 
<laughs> so instead of when you take a legal size piece of paper and fold it, you have a uh, or letter is five and a half by eight. Uh, legal would be uh, seven or uh, by eight and a half, sorry. Five and a half by eight and a half. Legal becomes, see how hard the math is already? Uh, <laughs> becomes seven by eight and a half. It's pretty close to square, but I was like, if I just make those the same number, I only have to do this math once. It's really easy. Um, and it just seems interesting. So, and I found a, a print on demand place at that time, which was a kind of a new technology that was coming up. Um, I found a print on demand place that said custom sizes, no extra charge on there. Hmm website and I was like all right let's yeah. do that and originally actually I was going to do eight and a half by eight and a half so that it was like a squared off piece of copy paper and they said the largest we can do is eight instead of eight and a half and I went okay then it's eight by eight <laughs> um so that's how it started I also I like that it's it pushes a horizontal um a lot of times in comics a, a horizontal panel is your establishing shot and on a traditional tall comics page, if you do something that's uh, thin or you know horizontal looking, that means you have to make you can't make it very tall. You start making it very tall, it starts to feel more square. It doesn't feel as panoramic. Um, but it means that it occupies such a teeny tiny space on the page. It's kind of nothing. It's like a toothpick. <laughs> and I really like movies like David Lean movies, Lawrence of Arabia, Doctor Zhivago were these you know just huge massive uh establishing shots these landscapes mean so much to the gravity of the story you know when you when you see Zhivago going to the the ice pa the you know the ice palace um those establishing shots mean everything when we're in the close-ups inside we don't have to see all the details we got them all in that giant establishing shot so the square page allows me a lot more real estate to make those establishing shots mean something it, it all, it all but it all started by a desire to not have to do math <laughs> it also like stands out from other comics on the shelf <laughs> well and that was actually a problem <laughs> <laughs> so when i when i i self-published the first issue and then i took it to san diego with me i was just walking around i was actually going to just be handing it out to some friends that i was going to be that i knew from like message boards because that's how old i am yeah uh there were message boards um and i just thought i'd hand them out to some of the friends that i knew you know as virtual friends only and then somebody encouraged me to go talk to a publisher and I went to talk to Arkea and the, the guy who ran the company's name was Mark Smiley. And he said, would you want, like, I think the first question he asked was, would you want to keep the format the same? And mentally I'm like, here we go. This is where this whole thing falls apart. He was, mild, <laughs> you know, he was mildly interested and this is a non-starter. We're done. Cause I said, yes, I want to keep the format the same. And he went, that's the right answer. <laughs> and I was really surprised. I was like, huh, that's interesting. I found out later that his business partner thought he was a little crazy. <laughs> you know, that it's a big risk doing something that's a non-traditional format. And then we found out that when the issues got shipped, some comic stores have, you know, and they're some, so some stores for their new comic displays have, um, not just cascading shelves, but they also have dividers that, you know, divide 
the comics horizontally as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're custom fit for a traditional modern age comic. You can't put my comic there. It's too wide. So it wouldn't fit. And then even the stores that didn't have those vertical dividers or, uh, yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. Those dividers yeah. that way. Um, when you put it in, it's short enough that the title goes down behind the comic in front of it. So it gets lost on the shelf. You can't even see that there's a book there. Um, and stores were like, how are we going to sell this thing? We can't even display it. And a lot of them put them in stacks or on easels up at the checkout, up on the counter. And that worked kind of like, you know, all the candy at the checkout <laughs> of the grocery store or like the tabloids, right? It's a it's this point of purchase impulse buy. What's that? That looks cool. Yeah, throw that on too. I'll buy one of those. <laughs> and that's how it worked out where we got some complaints right at the beginning that Mouse Guard was the square comic that made it stand out in a terrible way. <laughs> no, it stood out in a terrible way. But then once it started selling, most people stopped complaining. <laughs> uh, uh, as an artist have you ever looked back at any of your old work and thought about uh, redrawing it in your current style <laughs> yeah yeah. I made a promise to myself a while ago though not to um, because I wanted to learn the George Lucas lesson <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah I mean, I also, I knew, I mean, I knew it even before I made the promise to myself that having wanted to draw a comic for years before I actually did, it's really easy to get stuck in this rut of just, well, I need to make that better or I'm not ready. I I can't draw well enough yet or whatever. And you keep redrawing page one or you get to page five and you give up. And then when you come back at it a year later, you're like, well, I'll just start over. Um, and it means you're not getting anywhere. You never get a finished product. Yeah. And so I knew that it was it was always dangerous to go back and redo work that you've already done. Um, and then yeah, as Mouse Guard came out, and I, I, I just was like, I'm going to make a promise to myself that I won't do that. Now, having said that, I am doing that sort of, um, but I'm not redrawing. I'm, uh, what am I calling it? <sighs> I'm not recoloring. I am remastering the color um, on the older books. We are going back to the original files and we're planning on printing a slightly larger version. Um, Not quite as big as the original artwork, but bigger than the eight by eight format they were printed. And I was learning on the job when I was digitally coloring those issues. And there are problems where I like I didn't color within the lines or I was using this kind of textured brush and actually the texture is so textured it's distracting and you can't even see some of the lines. Um, so I'm going in and I'm softening some things up. I'm changing some of the values a little, um, but I'm doing it in a respectful way where everything is still there. It's more like when you know there's like a music remaster and they go back to the original tapes and then they remix it all clean it up, get rid of snaps, get rid of pops, make sure that the piano is coming in at the level it should be instead of drowning out the saxophone or the guitar or whatever. Right. I'm I'm doing more of that kind of a treatment to the colors of the books for these uh, these re-releases. Right. Oh, I'm also re-lettering it because I was a terrible letterer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the balloons the balloon tails are all these straight daggers that look like they're going to poke somebody's eye out. They don't have any life to them. There's no like subtle curl or anything. And it's not like I'm some 
amazing letterer now, but the right. old ones are bad, and I, I need to fix them. I think your lettering uh, gets... Well, I was actually thinking, well, rereading it, your lettering does get better over time. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, uh, who, who is your favorite... Also, who is your favorite character to design, and who would you say was the most difficult to design? Um... Difficult to design. Wow, I I feel like the answer is going to be the same for both. Actually, it's going to be Kalanaw. Okay. Um, was in. So the 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 earliest mice were just basically a fur color, a cloak color, and then a weapon. Right. And they're not wearing any other clothes or gear. Um. And as I've gone on, I've tried to put a few more details, maybe change the way the cloak, you know, wraps or, or clasps or something like that. Um, you know, in the beginning, Saxon was the only one who had a different one, and it was tied like a Boy Scout neckerchief, actually. Um, but that's the only one who really looked different other than the color. But as I've gone, I'm like, I'm, I need to add more details. I want, you know, he needs a belt, he needs a pouch, he needs a whatever. Kalanaw, because I was trying to get that um, that uh, uh, Obi-Wan feel like he it's that Star Wars adage of like it needs to be a world that looks lived in the, the, you know the ships need to look like they've been in a few fender benders you know, Kalanaw looked like he needed to be a veteran who had been through all of this and I couldn't just have him essentially naked with a cloak <laughs> I needed to give him a little bit more um and then the characters got redesigned for fall in terms of their costuming because they're going to be out, or I'm sorry, for winter because they were going to be out in, in winter snow. And it was there that I actually, I found that there were some things that I did to Kenzie, Sadie, and Kalanaw that I liked better than their older designs. And I've kept them even when they're not in winter. Um, Kenzie has this like lighter front panel now. Sadie always has a hood. Um, but Kalanaw has a hood. He has a little bit more gear on his belt. And figuring out like what that stuff is and how to be able to draw enough of those details where I can draw him panel after panel after panel without cursing. Um, <laughs> but there's also still enough stuff there that it matters. Uh, and then I had shown... Uh, I had shown a panel of Kalanaw... I think it was of Kalanaw's cloak. Somehow, anyway, somehow I had figured out that when he was younger, his cloak color was different. So when I did Black Axe, which is him younger, I had to like redesign him again in a way where not only am I drawing him looking younger, but now his cloak is this kind of like powder blue rather than kind of charcoal gray. And, and it was, I remember having to do a lot of mental gymnastics to figure out like, why is it this way? Or was it always dark and then it just fades? And yeah, so there was some stress there and making it difficult to design a character that I could make sense of in story terms, but also draw over and over and over again um, and not want to uh, shred the page. <laughs> uh are there any characters you like to draw for fun? Um, 
Uh, Saxon is one to draw for fun. Oh, you mean other people's characters? Uh, or my characters? Your characters. Sorry. Oh, my characters. Um, Saxon is the one that has the fun thing, and it's because of the attitude. Um, <laughs> it's that he's angry, and also those those little uh, the the ties for his uh, his cloak become these uh, like extra expressions. You know, you can depending on how flipped up they are, or how pointy they are, you can you can get a little bit more mood and movement out of the character with that. Um, also, it's just you know, it's a mount. It's it's pure basics it's a mouse it's an angry mouse with a sword <laughs> um, um, yeah so there, it's it's fun to get the attitude in there uh also uh uh with mouse yard who would you say is your favorite character and who would you say is your favorite character to draw <laughs> Oh, I thought I just did my favorite one to draw. Um, then you can just answer the other question. Okay. Uh, so, <laughs> favorite's hard because it's like, you know, they're all my kids. Yeah. Uh, and I've kind of, in some ways, it's it's the two, right? It's um, So Saxon is based, uh, personality-wise, on some of my worst traits. <laughs> it's the <laughs> leap before you look, overconfidence, uh, sometimes quick to anger, uh, and so when Saxon screws up, I'm like, I can relate, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that wasn't cool that you did that, but those are my foibles too. So uh, I, I sympathize, man. <laughs> uh, so yeah, Saxon's special to me in that way. And then Kalanaw is the one, like I said, kind of unexpectedly. He's the character that I just can't quit. He, you know, I, I killed him and I still did a whole book about him afterwards. <laughs> Uh, are there any uh, are there any characters that you wish you could have designed differently? Up, uh, sure. I mean, there, and some of this is just an evolution of drawing. You know, they get better at drawing, and then you wish, I wish I'd pushed things a little bit more in terms of some of their shape and design. I because I had, you know, done the very animated thing in high school that was more like Disney's Robin Hood, and Mouse Guard grew out of this you know originally this concept of like making it more adult making it more like literature or like golden age illustration illustrations um i wanted all the mice to look very similar other than those things like cloaks and and fur color or what weapon they're holding i i grew up reading ninja turtles when it was in black and white and when they were in color they all had red headbands and it meant that the only way you could tell them apart was either deciphering what they were saying like you know one of them is talking to another and says Leo. Well, we know that's not Leo. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, or which one? Okay, wait, that's okay. So we've got Leo there because there's swords. There's Raph. So the other two that we can't see their weapons are Mike and Don. Which ones? Which? And you have to do this like puzzle of figuring it out. I liked that. So when I started out, I wanted my mice to all look very similar in that same vein. You had to almost figure out which character is which. Now I wish I had put a little bit more differences between them um and i had avoided that at the beginning because i didn't want it to become these cartoony differences i didn't want to do a uh you know mutton jeff or a, a <laughs> burton ernie style you know one's very vertical one's very horizontal i didn't want to do those kind of cartoony tropes but now i wish you know I, it doesn't have to be all black and white it doesn't have to be all of one and none of the other 
Um, I probably could have dialed that in a little bit so that they were still drawn naturalistically, but you know, Kenzie could have been a little taller, a little slimmer. Saxon could have been less so. You know, could have done more differences, et cetera, with, with other characters. And then, like I said, with the costumes, there's all kinds of stuff that I've been subtly changing as we've gone, including like Kenzie's cloak color. This is part of the remastering for the color too. Um, we had some merchandise made in the early days and everything I got back had Kenzie's cloak being, if not borderline purple, purple. And it's because the blue was like, that I printed it in was just like right on that line of being too dark um and and reading as purple and it's like no i i definitely want it to be blue and so i've been lightening it and making it much paler um my palette has also gotten a little warmer and in warm light blue actually starts to become a little bit closer to a green a gray green so it always reads as blue in the context of the image but um it's not supposed to be purple <laughs> so it's, it's just course correction like this i always intended to be a certain way but i didn't do it well enough other things are oh i've realized over the years i i actually prefer it this way i, I need to change that slowly when writing your characters do you hear any particular voice in your head um sometimes for a while Kalanaugh sounded like um, me doing a, a like a bad Ian McKellen uh, <laughs> as Gant, you know, you shall not pass kind of thing. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know that I hear specific voices, but I have. I mean, because we at one point had a movie going, and even actually we've we've been up to bat on a movie several times. Um, you know, that always gets asked about and it becomes actually kind of a semi-serious conversation one time of actual real serious conversation and so it they find it valuable when i will make a list of names um even if it's not the people we can get they can go like oh this is the kind of voice you hear for liam now we need to find some because like when i you know mouse guard is getting close to being from a publishing standpoint 20 years old so the people that I had in my head as potentially like, this is kind of the voice that I hear for, you know, Liam, um, are now way too old. <laughs> <laughs> Play those characters. But it, saying it gets people in kind of the right, you know, mindset. Yeah. Oh, okay, I get it. You, you wanted, uh, like Ewan McGregor, or there was a, an actor in the, um, the movie, uh, uh, across the universe uh jim sturgis who i thought would be a fantastic liam but yeah that was 20 years ago and so now <laughs> those aren't the right actors but i can point to those specific performances and go that's kind of what i hear that's the that's the ballpark you should be in uh on the on the subject of the movie that i got mm -hmm. canceled uh do, do you still uh do you still want to adapt mouse guard to another medium or did that uh film cancellation discourage you uh i mean it was discouraging uh but it didn't discourage me from wanting to be in another medium so we had had one other kind of close at bat 
with Mouse Guard as a movie before the one with Fox. And when that one fell through, and it didn't get anywhere near as close, but when that one fell through, that one was frustrating in a completely different kind of way. Hmm. Uh, I won't even get into all of it, but it was all lawyery stuff and behind the scenes kind of stuff. None of it was creative decisions for the most part. It was right. it was right. an exercise in frustration. <laughs> and after all these years of trying to make something happen and dealing with people and talking with people and paying lawyers to try to get contracts to work and, um, and then it all just fell apart. Like it was just one day. It was just, yeah, that's not going to happen anymore. We're done. Okay. <laughs> it was like, okay. Why did I waste my time doing all of that? Putting ener any energy, I mean, not just the actual time of phone conversations and flights and, and visits and hotel rooms to stay there and, and just all of that stuff, but also just the mental energy of having to re-explain what Mouse Guard is and should be, or here's a creative way to do something. Like you want it to be different than the books. I don't want you to do it the way you're talking about. Here's a happy medium. Here's a new creative way. Like. I'm generating new versions of Mouse Guard for them. And it's just a ton of energy and emotional space and, and creativity and everything just flushed. <laughs> and after that one, I was I said at that point, I'm done. I don't I don't care. And so when people would come and say, I've got, you know, I'm interested in Mouse Guard, I'm you know, I'm with Warner Brothers or I'm with whoever, I'd go, I'm not interested, thanks. And there was several years there where I just I shut that conversation down. I didn't care who came out. I was like, I would have been further ahead if I used all those years working on a book instead of dealing with this process. Um, this more recent one, we the luckily the lawyery stuff, the dealy stuff, um, was way easier um, and less frustrating. Uh, and I had lawyers doing due diligence and everything, so it wasn't like it was a. You know, I got taken, there was no taken advantage of or anything like that. It just, it was a way smoother process. And it meant that we actually got in because we got further in the process. We got into the creative side of it. We actually got into the, here are good creative ideas. Let's all help each other with creative ideas. And that part was fun and interesting. And I got to see things from a different perspective than my point of view on Mouse Guard that then also weren't offensive, which is what the older version was. It was like, <laughs> you know, why mice, right? <laughs> it was never that extreme but it always kind of felt that extreme when they're like what if we also add in rats and cats uh, no 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 i'm sorry this have you read mouse card <laughs> with the the team with fox and west ball i have to give a tremendous amount of credit for he was the director um there were times where he would make creative decisions that were not creative decisions I would make. And even sometimes creative decisions that I would disagree with, but none of them were de creative decisions that I disrespected. Um, they were always interesting. And there were lots of times where we did agree or he came up with stuff that was even like, wow, that's better than what I did in the book. We should, I should have done that in my book. Um, so that reinvigorated it. And so when the bottom fell out of that, it was, a huge disappointment but not in a way where i'm ready to give up on that that aspect of it i still want to participate um, in that kind of creative endeavor working with other people to find a new way to bring mouse guard out into the world that is inherently different than my version in just 
already by the fact that it's a moving image instead of a book. Um, but obviously there are going to be lots of differences as that comes as well. And, and Wes is still very much interested in doing it. So it's, it's really just a, it's a studio game. It's a waiting game. It's a rights game. It's a, there's a, there's a whole lot of weird behind the scenes stuff of, you know, why and when and if, um, but I can tell you that all the people creatively involved are right where we were the day before we got canceled and that we all want to do it and we all want to do it together still. Yeah. Like the, the band didn't really break up. We just haven't seen each other in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, I also have a quick question about uh, when you autograph, I noticed when you autograph a mouse guard thing, you usually include like a drawing of a mouse head. Uh, mm -hmm. Is that any character in particular, or is it just no. a generic? <laughs> no, it's just a generic. In fact, some people even ask, like, oh, well, in they'll assume that it's some certain mouse, and they'll go, well, in this one, can you draw? And then they say a character, and I go, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not doing that, because that's a slippery... We're going to go... We're, I'm going to be in real trouble if we keep going down this path. Because then in the next book, you're going to want a different character, except I'm going to realize there's no way to distinguish who that character is with just the head. Now I'm having to draw a hand with a weapon, or now I'm having to draw, you know, a full body so we can see that one leg is a peg leg, or, you know, and it's like, now I'm doing full-on illustrations in every book. So, no, it is a generic mouse head that I can whip out like that, uh, and I cannot do it. People are amazed. It is like when I'm doing it, sometimes I can even look away while I'm doing part of it and it freaks the people out who are getting stuff signed. Because um, I'm not looking at their book while I'm just mashing on it with ink. Um, it's like muscle memory. But I can't, yeah, it's all muscle memory. And I can't draw the mouse facing the other direction uh, that same way. Like if I, if I get a pencil out and kind of start sketching out some rough shapes, I can get there quick and then bring out the pen. But I can, I've done it so many times facing to the left um, yeah, I can do it straight in pen with no, no pencil, no hesitation, and I can do it over and over, and it's fairly consistent. Uh, I was just curious. <laughs> uh, uh, I have a few questions related to like, uh, like fan works. <sighs> mm -hmm. uh, how do you feel about? Uh, parodies of mouse guard like one that uh was recently done by penny arcade <laughs> oh uh yeah I, I don't know if the penny arcade one was technically a parody but yeah right um <sighs> uh, the, the penny arcade is great um and penny arcade had been an advocate of the mouse guard role-playing game back when it first came out as well so um yeah, I'm I'm a fan of what they're doing, and I, I didn't even feel like that was a parody. It was like a, um, you know, like getting just right in on the, on the feel of it. Like, you know, it was it was joining the bandwagon rather than anything else. I um, I, I, I just I wasn't sure how to. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I wasn't sure how to phrase that, describe that. Sure. <laughs> there was a um. There have been a couple things that I've seen that have been parodies. Uh, right after Mouse Guard came out, uh, uh, oh, what's the name of the publisher? Oh, I'm blanking on the name of the publisher. They tended to do uh, comics that were fairy tales that uh, all of the women in the fairy tales were basically like comic book sexy women. 
right. uh, kind of drawn in that style. So whether it was you know Snow White or Little Red Riding Hood or whatever, it was you know sexy woman, sexy comic book woman in the in the lead. And uh, they did one. It was right after Mouse Guard came out. That was the Three Blind Mice, a retelling of the Three Blind Mice, and they had the farmer's wife, I think, being like held down by her hair by the mice and uh because you got to get the sexy lady in there (laughs) but they had definitely drawn the mice to be my mice you know like so that was a parody the only reason that that was irksome was the guy who ran that company had given me a little bit of grief really irritated that his that mouse guard was coming out of nowhere and outselling his comics and i was like you're paying attention to that i'm not like i I I, like look i'm just happy for what i get man i'm not looking at anybody else's plate uh and so when he did that i was kind of like man that jerk after yelling at me he's gonna put my comic my characters on his cover (laughs) um but the idea like if he had just done it and we hadn't had any conversations at a convention before that i would have been like oh that's funny that's that's cool um (laughs) I know that there have been, you know, in the same way that people will come up to me and go, have you, oh, this reminds me of Redwall. You know, I know that there are other things out there. Uh, Mice Templar came out around the same time as Mouse Guard. Hmm. And both of our fandoms almost went to war with one another. <laughs> over. You're copying David Peterson. Well, you're copying Mike Oming and Brian Glass. <laughs> it really was. We just both kind of came up with a similar thing around the same time and both got publishers interested around the same time and they just happened to come out you know it's just one of those weird things yeah. uh, and neither one of us really had a problem with the other other than it was really annoying for all of us to have to constantly answer the question or deal with are you mad about mice templar are you mad about mouse guard what do you think of those mice templar guys what do you you know um Squarriors is one that came up that was squirrel warriors uh, super bloody and i remember a lot of people thinking that that was some kind of a mouse spin-off parody or something and i'm like i don't know if it is i, I don't think it's really that similar especially with how gory and bloody it is uh, it doesn't feel like my work at all but um yeah i mean as long as it's being respectful if, it, if it's supposed to be making direct reference to me as long as it's respectful or really funny <laughs> uh, you know it can be disrespectful if it's hilarious <laughs> if it's not hilarious don't be disrespectful um, and then when it comes to like fan work uh, you know as long as nobody's trying to profit off of it I'm, I'm just honored uh, you know all, I'm, I embrace people who are doing fan artwork um, I've had a couple people uh, do like shorts I've had teachers even assign doing short stories or co- short comics uh, set in Mouse Guard just to teach kids how to tell stories. Um, and I think that stuff's great. Uh, I've had one person on uh, on one of the art forums who was posting uh, uh, their Mouse Guard, short Mouse Guard fan comics, um, where they were writing stuff that was definitely not what I would put in Mouse Guard and then also kind of in the in their own comments or description of the piece insulting me as a creator like mm-hmm. you know Peterson doesn't even know what to do with his characters this is how they should behave yeah. Yeah. that kind of thing and that was a little like well if you just 
done your comic, that would have been fine. But you don't need to like you don't have to add that. <laughs> right. You don't have to somehow say you know Mouse Guard better than I do. <laughs> I know your creation better than you. <laughs> yeah. Or you know, you're not doing it as well as you could. Like, well, maybe that's true, but also like this is that's what's gonna be. This is as good as it's gonna get. <laughs> Unless I hand it off to someone and I guarantee you it's not gonna be you. <laughs> Uh, but yeah no i think it's great when people i i try to do a fan art section on my blog every so often um because i i love it when people do that kind of stuff so when penny arcade did that whole thing about a snake cult uh, <laughs> it still felt like they like understood mouse guard <laughs> yeah and i think like the reason i don't even think of that one in the same way like there are parts of that that felt like it was based on mouse guard comics or the mouse guard role-playing game but it also felt like it was a little bit secretive nim it felt like it was um a little bit red wall uh like it was it was all of that kind of you know larger tapestry that all of these talking animal stories or even specifically mouse talking animal stories are based on it was it was like the penny arcade stuff fit right in the middle of that venn diagram and was respectful to all parties involved so it just felt it just felt genuine it just felt like a genuine interesting story that had a joke every you know fourth panel <laughs> And also the joke was never on the subject matter. Like the joke was never about the mice specifically or the genre. It was about one of the characters who was playing or the other character's expectation of how this was going to be played. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, with it all, uh, Sorry, uh, Mouse Guard fan stuff. How do you feel about uh, more adult stuff? Yeah, I mean, that's where it's... And that was one of the ones where I said that the person was putting stuff in their fan comic that was definitely not Mouse Guardish. I mean, you know, people can do whatever they want. Right. Uh, but putting my name on it uh, doesn't make me feel good. Um <laughs> And there is an element of like, if I'm not talking as the creator of Mouse Guard to a fan of Mouse Guard, but I am talking as a professional illustrator to someone who, a storyteller to someone who is maybe wanting to do that or an amateur or trying to break into the industry. My bigger advice with that is if you are changing something from the like doing doing fan story like if you are aspiring to be a storyteller doing fan uh like fan scripts fan fiction it's a great way to exercise the muscle to try to figure out how to tell stories and not have to do all the work from the ground up of creating something new out of whole cloth yeah um nothing wrong with as an amateur practicing learning a craft by doing fan stories that's great if you are changing what the core tenets and ideas are of the thing that you're setting it in enough that you know it doesn't feel like that thing anymore you're at the point where you need to stop trying to make it fan fiction you just need to make your own thing yeah yeah like if you want to do adult anthropomorphic sword and sorcery kind of stuff then do that. Make up your own thing. Don't don't bring Mouse Guard into it. Don't bring Redwall. <laughs> don't bring, you know, if, if it 
if you're inspired by those things, that's fine, but find a way to take what, who you are as a creator and those things that you want to embrace, whether it's uh, uh, adult themes through sexuality or through violence or whatever, but do what you need to do to your story to make it all about those things that you care about as a storyteller. And at that point, I'm not really, you know, Mouse Guard shouldn't be involved. I shouldn't be involved. Yeah. It should be a, a very thin veneer of, well, obviously they like talking animal stories, but they also like these other things. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, but I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not contacting lawyers or anything or trying to have sites shut down over when that stuff pops up. Right. right. I also don't actively go hunting for it all that much. So right. fair enough. <laughs> uh, also, uh, as a creator, have you ever had uh, ideas for stories set outside of Mouse Guard, or are you currently fully uh, devoted to Mouse Guard? Uh, both of those things are true. I am fully devoted to Mouse Guard in that I realize I do not have the time uh, or can really put forth the effort to do anything other than Mouse Guard, right? especially right now um, and for the next several years. But yeah, I, I've even, there's a whole. There's a whole um, video series, video podcast series my friend and I did called The Plotmasters Project. You can go to theplotmasters.com or look up The Plotmasters on YouTube. And uh, so my, my friend Jesse, who if I'm Saxon, he's Kenzie. Um, he and I met when I was 11 in Boy Scouts. And then from the time that I was a freshman in high school up through about the end of college, we were always writing and drawing and creating new things together, new characters, new stories. And we'd almost set them in different genres. We'd go like, okay, now we need to do something that's more like a space opera. Okay, now we need to do a Western. Okay, now we need to do whatever, you know, and a superhero thing. We'd, we'd do that. And, uh, we generated a lot of stuff. Um, uh, I think it was about 30 IPs between the two of us. Wow. Some things were his, some things were mine, and some things were ours. And the Plotmasters project was, uh, we, we thought we were so good at it, we called ourselves the Plotmasters back, <laughs> back when we were young and stupid. We even made business cards. I still have one on the shelf. Um, so we, we decided, um, to do this video podcast series where we would take one IP of ours and then show all the old embarrassing artwork while we describe what the concept of it was. Sometimes the concepts were things we came up with when I was 14. Uh, and we would maybe have drawn these characters on and off for years. So you could even maybe see an evolution in our, our high school work. Uh, and then to wrap up the episode, he and I would also do a new drawing today what it would look like if we were going to work on those. And we'd each come at it from a different angle. You know, I'd really play up this side of the character, or I'd really play up this idea. And sometimes our our, our revisions were completely different, and sometimes they were very similar. Um, but it was a fun thing to do, and I think some of those stories are good enough that, like, we could just do them. Um, but it's just a matter of time and, and effort and stuff like that one of them um that i the one that i'm probably have the closest to my heart was one called cat's trio that definitely grew out of our love of ninja turtles and uh over the years we did a lot of things to try to make it very different than ninja turtles at least in tone 
and we were looking at kind of where Ninja Turtles had gone throughout the cartoons and movies and reboots and things. We were like, well, we're even though there's obviously some similar turtle DNA, not specifically turtle DNA, but you know what I mean, right. story DNA. Um, I think we could tread new ground with Cat's Trio because we can do stuff that the turtles will never do. Like that's just territory they won't touch. And I just saw the new animated Mutant Mayhem and boy, it touches on about 70% of all of that stuff that we thought, <laughs> you're like we're breaking new ground. We're doing stuff the turtles would never do. <laughs> there it all is so uh yeah so that makes it harder to then go i know what we should do we should start cat's trio it's like red wall all over again <laughs> someone's doing this better than we were gonna uh the general question uh i uh with regarding uh commissions uh i've seen uh I think on your blog you said you, uh, not sure if I'm phrasing this right, but like you try to sort of, uh, subtly, uh, dissuade people from asking for, like, a human character, but there have been some exceptions. Uh, mm -hmm. do you just have a preference, wondering, do you just have a preference for drawing animals? Yeah, so I don't mind drawing human characters. Right. Uh, as long as the character isn't supposed to be an attractive human. Uh. Um, so if you if you wanted a character who's known for being good looking, um, I'm not the right person to draw that character probably. We're, I think we're both gonna be disappointed in the final word. <laughs> um, but I mean like, you know, Bruce Wayne is handsome. I probably shouldn't do a Bruce Wayne commission, but I don't think Batman is specifically handsome and there's enough of a mask and attitude and I can draw a Batman commission for you, I'm happy to. Um, the other place where I dissuade people is I don't want to draw a mouse as Batman. Uh, right. Um, and I used to, I used to do that all the time. And it got to a point where I was doing that all the time. <laughs> uh, and I had to say no, it, it, I had to say no for a couple of reasons. It was, it was tedious, especially like when some blank covers came out, there's some specific blank covers. There was the, uh, fallen sun Captain America issue, the Captain America is dead issue where right. it's a blank cover. And the idea was you go around and get artists to draw the next Captain America. Yeah. everybody who approached me asking me to draw a mouse with cap shield acted like they were the first person to come up with the idea <laughs> to draw a mouse with cap shield and after you know 20 of those I'm going I don't want to draw a mouse with cap shield again today uh, and then right after that there was some kind of Iron Man blank cover and people wanted an Iron Mouse <laughs> I did a couple of those and it was fun at first trying to figure out the design and then after a while you're like God help me, I don't want to draw Iron Mouse again. Yeah. Um, and then I got into a weird position where, and it was usually at San Diego, there were some some uh, original art collectors who loved getting commissions that were trying to outdo each other by weirder and weirder things they could get me to do. And they weren't like weird, weird, but it was right. like, it wasn't just Batman, Superman, you know, Captain America. It was like, what about the Rocketeer? What about the Rocketeer is, you know, what about Star Wars stuff? Could you do like, 
what would Chewbacca look like as a mouse? I'd probably make him like a hamster so he's bigger. <gasps> so cool. Draw that for me. Yeah. And they just, those people kept kind of one up <laughs> each other. And, you know, what about the Watchmen? Draw Watchmen as mice. And then the other one saw, he was like, I was coming to you for a Watchmen as mice and they got first. Shoot. Man. And then I, I don't remember if they suggested or I suggested they were like, could you do the Minutemen? The, you know, the characters that were Watchmen before Watchmen? What about them as mice? And yeah, and it just got to this ridiculous point where I was like, can I? It's hard not to at some point take that personally. Like I thought, would Jeff Smith draw Bone as Batman? Yes, he probably would two or three times. And then after that, he'd go, I'm just going to draw you my character. I'm just going to draw a phone bone for you. That's that's if you're a fan of mine, a drawing a phone bone should make you happy. Yeah. And I just thought, yeah, if someone isn't enough a fan of Mouse Guard, that a mouse drawing would make them happy. What are we doing here? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not going to just kind of court gesture and dance to make everybody happy. Um, it also got complicated because there were some characters that I could easily mouseify and there were other characters that I couldn't. Like, we, you know, most obvious was like Power Girl. Right. Like when you're <laughs> with a character, there's an asset that is something that you need to really emphasize to make everyone know that's Power Girl. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to do that with a mouse. Um, or even characters like Wonder Woman. Uh, the, the kind of eagle bustier is such an iconic part of the costume that when you put that there, it implies mouse boobs. <laughs> and it's like, I don't really want to go there. That's yeah. not, I don't want to add anatomy. I also don't want it to kind of like stick out weird. Like they're flat chested, like the way I draw my mice, even my female mice. But now there's this like, yeah, it was. So I was like, yes, I'll draw Cyclops as a mouse. No, I won't draw Wonder Woman as a mouse. You know, and it just got, it felt like I was spending way too much, kind of like right now, I'm spending way too much time explaining it instead of just going, how about I draw a mouse character for you? <laughs> so yeah, some people do think that that means like, I won't draw humans and stuff like that. I love drawing, especially monster characters, you know, Hellboy, Hulk, Thing, yeah. those characters I love drawing. Um, but even humans like Spider-Man, Batman, if they have enough of a mask, and cool other stuff going on costume wise uh, I can totally do it I'm not anti-human alright uh, uh, if you were to go back and relive your art career is there anything you would have done differently um, wow anything I would have done differently in my art career uh, there's a couple pieces I would have held on to instead of selling, but not not many. Uh, I, I don't have like a ton of regrets in that regard. Um, but there are a couple pieces where it's like, nah, I shouldn't have sold that page. I should have held on to it. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I guess that's a sign of a life well lived, right? Like I don't, any of the regrets I had, like anything that I would, you start to get into a butterfly effect kind of a thing. Like anything you go back and say you want to change then would change potentially everything after it. And I think most of the things that would be categorized as negative were probably not negative enough, not negative enough to be worthy of change 
but negative enough that they forced me to learn a lesson. And if I changed that, I wouldn't learn that lesson. So, yeah, I, I can't, I can't think of anything off the top right. of my head. Right. Uh, I remember uh, uh, the one in the wills as a dream project for you, and uh, IDW like finally let you do it. Uh, are there any other uh? Are there any other dream projects like that that you'd want to work on? Um, n not really anymore other than um, I, so there are people who I've worked with before uh, or, or things that I've worked on before that I'd love to get a chance to do more of like I'm never going to have drawn enough Ninja Turtles covers. Um, I've, I've done a bunch. I, I think close to 20 at this point. Um, and it's never going to be enough. And the same for Yusagi Ojimbo. I've done a bunch of stuff for Stan for Yusagi Ojimbo. And that's never going to get old. I, I can always come back to that. Um, stuff I haven't done professionally that would be a dream uh, would be uh, Hellboy. Uh, I've I've gotten to draw Hellboy lots of times as commissions for people, but kind of only two times semi-officially. Um, one was for the 30th anniversary. Um, I don't think it was ever published published. I think it got put in the San Diego Comic-Con souvenir book for that year. But it wasn't published like by Mike or by Dark Horse or anything like that. And then the, uh, the other one that I did was semi-official was for that... Uh, Mignola documentary that came out and uh, I was asked to do a print. I actually offered to do a print and then they had to confirm with Mike that that would be okay because they were under instruction that the people who did the prints for the Kickstarter were only going to be people who had worked on Hellboy with Mike before because then the approvals process would be easy. Mike had already worked with them and already knew that they, you know, they knew what Mike wanted. So they had to kind of ask for a special dispensation for me to get in, and I, Mike said yes. So um, I got to do that piece, but it was uh, it was it was shown on screen in the documentary, which surprised me. I didn't realize that. I thought it was just going to be a bonus item for the Kickstarter. Um, then it popped up on screen when I was watching the documentary. I was like, "Hey, <laughs> <laughs> I know that art." <laughs> um, but yeah, I'd love to do something Hellboy at some point, whether it's covers or a short story or something like that. I'd love to do some Turtles interiors, but it, it, that's just a timing issue. Um, the amount of time it takes me to do interiors and do it the way I'd want to, I think it'd have to be a short story because yeah. I just don't know that I'd yeah. have the time. But yeah, um, those are the things that immediately come to mind. Uh, Hellboy interior, Hellboy covers or interiors and, and Turtles interiors are, are the, yeah. Those are the big dreams that I can think of. Right. We're coming up on about two hours, so we'll ask you a couple of questions. Um, is there any advice you'd give to a perspective artist? Yeah, I mean, sure. There's lots of artists to give to a perspective artist. Um, keep up with it. Like, keep drawing. Draw all the time. Um, set reasonable goals for yourself. 
Um, if you know that you're not good at drawing a particular thing, or maybe you even avoid drawing a particular thing because it's scary or whatever, um, you don't have to set out to be a master at drawing that thing right away, but you also shouldn't avoid it. You need to set up reasonable goals of how you're going to get slightly better at it over time. Um, there's lots of kind of tutorials, whether it's about backgrounds or perspective or human anatomy or, um, you know, whatever it is, color, line work. Um, I also think there's a huge benefit in kind of like writing the fan fiction stuff, like copying copying artists you like, especially when you're a really young artist. I did a whole um, lecture. I've done it at a couple colleges, and I put it up on YouTube called Drawing Like Yourself. And it's about my path of realizing how to put away the thing that influences you. You know, like everybody has their favorite artists or their people that they want to draw like. They try to emulate. They try to become a clone of that person. And my, my big takeaway message is don't don't make that your entire artistic voice because at best you're going to be a second right, second rate, whoever that person is. Um, and it'd be way better to be a first rate you. Um, so think of yourself as kind of a, a filtration device where all the inspiration stuff goes in, you know, you're, you're, or you're a stew. I don't know. I'm mixing metaphors now. You're <laughs> on top of a stew, but you know, all these things go in, and the filtration is you also as an artist are picking what thing you like about that artist. You know, if you're really inspired by whoever, Jim Lee, you know, the thing that you might really like about Jim Lee that you're trying to put into your artwork might be very different than what another artist appreciates about Jim Lee and is trying to put into their work. But if you have multiple things that you're inspired by that unique blend is who you are as an artist. And at some point you need to put your access to the reference away when you're drawing and you just need to sit and draw like yourself. You just need to rely on the fact that you've absorbed enough about their work. You need to have studied their work and actually broken it down to what it is you like about it. And then just try to draw it without staring at the work. Because when you stare at the work, when you have it right out in front of you and you're copying, there's, like I said, there's a benefit to that, but ultimately it just becomes this exercise in copying. And then when you have to draw something that they've never drawn, you get stuck. Like, oh no, I, I can't draw a person kissing a robot because Jim Lee never drew a person kissing a robot or whoever. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean, there's lots of stuff about yarns, but yeah, that's, keep going. Uh, keep well, Also keep going if you want to, you know, it's, it's totally okay to have art as a hobby or to have art as your um, your outlet. Uh, I don't think anybody looks twice at someone who decides to buy a acoustic guitar and just strum on it in the evenings or try to figure out the, the chords to their favorite song or get good enough that they can do kumbaya at the, at the campfire. <laughs> For some reason with artists, if somebody sits down to draw everyone around them and even themselves, I think there's this pressure of like, well, you're doing this because you're going to get good enough to become a professional, right? And if you aren't growing at some kind of, you know, quick rate to professionalism, you're just wasting your time, you're wasting money, you know, all that kind of stuff. But uh, I think it's totally okay if you just want to do art because it's your outlet. All right. Um... This is the show is called On the Air with Power Squared. So we ask all our uh, 
guessed if they've actually read Power Squared or you're aware that we're doing we do a comic book? I have not. I was aware once you gave me uh, the card at, at San Diego. Right. right. I realized right. this isn't just a podcast. Right. All right. Well, maybe we'll send you some PDFs and you can read them. Uh, Very cool. So uh, how would people follow you? What's the best way? Uh, I am at MouseGuard on, uh, I think, every social media that's out there. Um, and I'm my own name on Facebook, although I don't really accept friend requests anymore. I think if you just click that you want to be a friend, you'll still see all the updates without me accepting. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm at MouseGuard on uh, Hive and Threads and Instagram and Twitter or X. <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, I also stream on Twitch uh, Mondays and Wednesdays, uh, and I'm David Peterson. And uh, Peterson is spelled P-E-T-E-R-S-E-N. All the vowels in my last name are E's. <laughs> so if you if you look for me on Twitch, I stream there. I have a, a blog that's davidpeterson.blogspot.com that updates on Tuesdays with a lot of behind the scenes stuff um, or process stuff. So I think those are the, those are the best ways. And also then mouseguard.net is a good hub that has links to all the socials that also has a link to my online store, to my blog, uh, to Twitch. So. All right. Well, we want to thank you uh, very much for being on the show, taking the time. Yeah, you, you answered a lot of questions really well. And we, we uh, really appreciate you being on the show. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Okay. So until next time, I'm David Hankins. I'm Paul Hankins. I'm Trevor Hankins. And you've been on the air with Power Squared. Uh, 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 uh.